0: Reading today is from First Corinthians one ten through eighteen. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knitted, knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Cla- by Cleo's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were were you baptized in the name of Paul? Thank God, (coughs) excuse me. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might be, not be emptied of his power for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Word of the Lord.
1: Yeah, it's okay to giggle a little bit when Paul can't seem to remember who he did and didn't baptize. Sorry about the feedback here. We'll get that squared away. Well, good morning again, uh, both of, to those of you who are here in the sanctuary with us and uh, to those of you who are joining us online. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this community. Uh, we're glad we have the option for people to join us remotely if necessary. Okay. That's all right. Are we all right, Dave? Very good. My name is Dan Cook. I'm a teaching pastor here at Genesis, uh, and it is always a privilege to be here with you and to talk about God's word with you. We are in the season of Epiphany, and I believe this is the third Sunday after Epiphany. And Epiphany is that time of the liturgical calendar where we focus on who Jesus was as a human being, the Incarnation, what he taught. Uh, We know that the crucifixion and the resurrection and Easter are coming, and those are critically important parts of the Christian faith, but so was Jesus' life, and so was the ministry that he taught. And so we take time every year to focus specifically on that. And one of the ways that we we can do that often... You know, preachers will obviously focus on gospel passages during Epiphany. That just makes sense, right? It's the story of Jesus' life and of his ministry. But one of the other ways we can focus on how and learn about how you know, Jesus, who Jesus was and how he taught is by looking at the early church and looking how they wrestled with who Jesus was and what, he, what it was he taught. So for the next couple of weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the very first chapter of that, actually, specifically. And we're going to look at this back and forth between Paul and the church at Corinth and try to determine what's going on there and what they were wrestling with and how that applies and how that informs how we wrestle with things here today. So we want to start with a bit of background. As far as we know, Paul never had any children. There's no mention of them. There's no mention of a wife. There's no mention of any kind of rearing of kids at all in any of Paul's letters or in the Acts of the Apostles. So we don't think that Paul had any kids. But if you read his letters he often speaks to the churches as though they were his children. He views them in that way, like these are young kids he needs to rear. And while I'm not a parent, and don't pretend to be, I fully believe, parents, you all love all your children very much equally. Absolutely. I'll 100% stipulate to that. Now, for the kids in the room, what I'm about to say does not apply to you. Just know that. But parents, if you're honest, there's one of those kids, though you love them equally, was maybe a bit more of a challenge than the other kids. Now, again, not the ones in the room. But maybe one of those kids was more of a challenge. In my family, I'm not going to say it was my brother. He's not here to defend himself, so I'm not going to do that. I will say it wasn't me, and then you all can do the calculus. But there's that kid that challenges parents just a little bit more than the other. And for Paul, the church that challenged him more than any other was the church at Corinth. N.T. Wright, who's perhaps the foremost scholar talking about Paul these days, says that the church at Corinth was the church that made Paul pull his hair out. You'll see a lot of times in artwork Paul displayed as a bald man. And apparently he wasn't before he planted the church of Corinth, according to N.T. Wright. What you have to remember is that Corinth is a Roman city. And in Roman cities, status was hugely important. And Corinth was no exception. Knowing your own status, improving your own status, comparing your status to other people's status. This was woven into the culture of Roman cities, and Corinth uh, took it to a new level. So one of the major themes, perhaps the major theme of at least the first letter to Corinthians, and probably the second one as well, is Paul pushing back against that very idea. And he pushes back with the theme of unity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is unity, not only in the Christian church, but in our lives in general. Because there are things that divide the church. The things that can divide churches. And Paul alludes to one directly and another one I'm going to talk about was a little bit indirect. But if you look at verse 12, find the scripture here very quickly. If you look at verse 12, there's one of those things right there. What I mean is that each of you say, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. Cephas is just the Greek name for Peter. Or I belong to Christ. So right away we have leadership splits, right? We have people who are trying to rank themselves in the church of Corinth based on who their favorite preacher is. That not, that's not only something that happened in the first century, that's something that happens today. I hope it doesn't happen here, but we have a lot of different pe- preachers here and we have a lot of different preaching styles. And it's okay to prefer one style over another style. That's fine. You can prefer Kara. You can prefer Ally. Some of you might prefer me. I don't know why, but you might. And that's fine. But what happens is when you start separating yourselves out into cliques like that, or we're the group that prefers this preacher, we're the group that prefers that preacher, there's a humanness in this broken world to try and use that to dominate over one, of, one another well, we're better than those people because we prefer this preacher. or well, we're better than those other people because we refer this leader. And it's not just preaching. It's leadership in general. Christian leaders, pastors like me, have other Christian thought leaders that they like to follow. And there's also Christian thought leaders they don't like to follow. And there's a trap there to say, oh, I'm with this guy, not that guy. I'm with this gal, not that gal. And use that as sort of a ranking system. And that's directly what Paul's pushing back against here. So leadership is something that can divide the church. Another thing that can divide the church is doctrine. And Paul doesn't talk about it specifically here, but y'all giggled when he was stumbling through that one portion, right? Well, there's there's something there to focus on. One of the doctrines that tends to divide the church today is the doctrine of inerrancy. And that being a word some of you are very familiar with and a word some of you aren't familiar with. So I'll do a thumbnail sketch. The doctrine of inerrancy is actually fairly modern. And it holds that every word of the Bible, every letter, every jot and tittle, is 100% true, 100% literal, and without any error whatsoever. God is perfect, therefore God's word must be perfect. That's the line of thinking. Now, the kind of mental gymnastics you have to do to look at verses 14 through 16, as Paul sits there and says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Well, I mean, there was the two that I baptized, and, and then there was that other family that I... You know, I don't remember who I baptized and who I didn't, but the point is... And then he moves on with his argument. Now, how do you, how do you run that through a filter of inerrancy? I don't know how you can. And that's just one of many examples of spots in the Bible that don't fit neatly this absolutely literal, absolutely true, 100% without error message. Now, you can tell I don't believe in that particular doctrine. There are those that, and very well-meaning people that absolutely do. And the trap is, if I can sit here and say, this is why I don't believe that, that I can then associate myself with a group of people that don't believe that and we can think we're better Christians than those Christians that do believe that. That's the trap. That's the trap. Because whether you believe in inerrancy or don't believe in inerrancy, that's not center. We talk all the time here at Genesis about center-set theology. The idea that there is a core group of things that we all as Christians believe. And that everything else we can be in discussion and in debate about. And inerrancy to me is absolutely out there in that field to be debated and to be discussed. So there are things like leadership and there are things like doctrine that can divide the church. And there's plenty of different other things that can divide churches. So the question then becomes, why why is that kind of division problematic? Why is Paul pushing back against that? Why is unity so important to Paul? Why is unity so important to the Christian church? And you might suspect that it's just practical. And to a degree, it is, right? The church as a body has a job, has a mission that Jesus set out for us. And we can do that mission, we can perform that job better if we're all together pointed in the same direction. That just makes logical sense, right? So there is that practical element of it. And of course, in Paul's time, when the church was being uh, persecuted, it made sense to hang together, right? There's that famous line from Benjamin Franklin around the Revolutionary War where he says, you know, we either hang together or we will assuredly hang separately. Phil got it, right? That if you hang together, that makes it more difficult for the government to divide and conquer you. So there's that practical element of it. But behind both of those practical elements is the all-important truth that at the center of the church is Christ, is Jesus, and that our identity and our value are to be found in Jesus. And when we divide ourselves into groups and we start trying to dominate one another each other or compare ourselves to each other, what inevitably happens is that we become more invested in those things that divide us than we are in Christ, and we get that totally backwards. When we do that, we wander off the path that leads to the kingdom. When we do that, we inevitably try somehow to dominate one another and that's what Paul says is saying no to in Corinth. Corinth fell into that trap all the time because it was just part of their regular life even before they were Christians. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap too. But at the heart of Christ's teaching is that earthly power is displayed by trying to dominate one another, but kingdom power is displayed by serving one another, by sacrificing for each other. If I sacrifice my needs to make sure you have yours and you sacrifice your needs to make sure I have mine, then we all get where we need to be at the end of the day. Kingdom power is displayed by serving one another. That's the message of the cross. In the kingdom, we don't climb over each other on our way up the social ladder. That's not how it works. In the kingdom, we serve one another. And we see that each other's needs are met, and there's no need for any ladder at all because our value is found in Christ. All of our value is found in Christ. So there's no stratification whatsoever. Unity is essential to fulfilling the mission of the church. But there's a trap there too. Because it sounds good in theory, right? And then that theory smacks up against real life, and you say, well, wait a minute. I hold some pretty strong convictions that I think are correct and other people don't hold those convictions and other people get hurt by those people that don't hold those convictions. How am I supposed to be in unity with those people who are hurting other people? It doesn't, Unity does not mean that we give up our convictions. It doesn't mean that we try to whitewash over our differences. Pardon me. Beverly Gaventa is a New Testament professor at Baylor University and she says that unity in faith does not mean uniformity in thought and practice. Matthew Skinner is a New Testament professor at Luther Seminary over in St. Paul, and he said about this passage that no one should identify Paul's references to agreement and no divisions as a plea for no differences or no variety in the church. If you remember back to when we talked about Galatians 3, remember that famous passage from Galatians 3, now there is no more Jew, there is no more Greek, there is no more slave, there is no more free, there is no male, there is no female. Paul wasn't saying that those divisions didn't exist, that those differences didn't exist. It sounds like that's what he's saying, but that's not what his intention was. Paul's intention in pointing out those differences is saying that while those distinctions absolutely exist, what's more important than any of them is your value, is your identity in Christ. That if you're looking there to find your self-worth, then these other things become true but almost unimportant or they become benefits for you to learn from without dividing and trying to dominate one another. Unity does not mean giving up our convictions on important issues, and it clearly does not mean that we accept abuse from other people, be it mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever. Unity is a posture. Unity is a path to the kingdom, not an absolute inviolable rule. Unity means unity of purpose, right? Jesus taught us what it means to be human, to be truly human, the way it was designed to be back in the garden. Sacrificing for each other where we can and insisting on justice and equity where we must. But always, whether we're sacrificing, whether we're trying to find justice, we're always doing that with the idea of bringing others along, not marginalizing them, not shoving them off to the side and saying, you're going to be left behind because you disagree with what we believe. There's a passage in Micah 6 that's also pretty famous, and it's actually amongst next week's uh, uh, liturgy readings, but I'm going to steal it and use it a little bit today. Micah 6, 8 says that, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And I think each of those three things, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God, are good things individually. But when you separate them from one another, they become dangerous. We've seen it. If you seek justice, which is a good thing, but you do so without love, and specifically without love for the person from whom you're seeking the justice, it can turn very quickly into vengeance. If you try to love kindness, but you try to love people without seeking justice for clearly marginalized, clearly oppressed people, then that love becomes self-abuse, it becomes codependence after a point. And if you don't seek justice and if you don't love kindness with humility, with the understanding that we don't know everything and we can't know everything about other people's circumstances and why it is they do what they do. If you seek justice or try to love kindness without humility, then justice and love become arrogance and condescension. Unity Genesis means caring about other people, means serving others as Jesus repeatedly taught us to do and not caring a bit for how foolish that may make us look in the eyes of other people. Just go back to verse 18 there where Paul says, for the message of the cross is about foolishness, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of the cross, the message of the cross is serving other people, is sacrificing for other people. And if you think that's hard to do in a church, you're right. But I'm going to submit to you that it gets even harder because that same posture, I believe, should be taken towards everybody in your life, not just other members of the church. It absolutely should be used towards other people in the church, but it should be used towards everybody in your life as well, and that seems virtually impossible at times, but that's what Christ is asking of us. The best way we can evangelize to the rest of the world, and I know that that word gives some people the willies, the best way we can display our Christian values to other people is not by screaming in their face, but by actually living those values out. The biggest and most correct criticism of the church today is that while Christians love to tell everybody how they should be living like Jesus, too often we're not following up and doing it ourselves. And so we, screams, we scream hypocrisy to everybody else. Less jumping in front of microphones and cameras and hollering about the evils of liberal moralism or the, the evils of compassionate lack of heart. Less of that and more of actually doing things to address problems that exist in our community here now today would do wonders for the Christian church. And I submit we need to be part of that. Which doesn't mean that we point at the people who sit in front of cameras and holler about the evils of liberalism or the evils of conservatism. It doesn't mean we point at those people and say, they're doing it wrong. Come follow us. We're doing it right because now we're just falling straight into the trap that Paul laid out for us here. What it means is that we try to work with those folks that we differ with. We look at them and say, look, <clears throat> you do it your way, and I'm thinking I'm going to do it my way, but let's get together in community. Let's go pack lunches for people on February 9th. Let's act in the community. Let's address problems in our community together, and then you and I can have a conversation about why you do it that way and why I do it this way, but the whole while we're actually living it out we're actually doing the thing, and we're putting on display God's love and mercy and grace and compassion for the rest of the world to see. That's the kind of unity. That's unity of purpose. That is biblical unity. That is what Jesus asked us to do. That's serving like he taught us to do. That's finding our identity at the center of our faith in Christ, and that's what Paul was pleading with the Corinthians to focus on, and that is what we need to focus on today. Unity, not in uniformity, but unity in following Jesus. Unity in the kingdom. Unity in love. That's the message of Paul to the Corinthians in this passage. Amen? (coughs) Pardon me. So I have a challenge for you this week. A homework assignment, if you will. I'd like you guys sometime this week to stop when you have a moment. And I know that can be very difficult to find those moments in life, but be intentional. Find a moment this week and stop. And I want you to ask yourself two questions. One, who do I want to be better than? And two, who do I want to separate myself from? Those might be the same person. Those might be two totally different people. But stop for a moment and think about who that is. And then I want you to say a prayer. And it doesn't have to be this exact prayer, but something along these lines. Father, help me see this person's identity in Christ Help me understand how to find unity in the purpose of bringing forth your kingdom with this person. And then stop and listen. Listen for the Spirit to move you. And that may happen the very first time you pray that prayer. That may happen the seventh time you pray that prayer. But stop and listen for the Spirit moving in your heart, moving in your life. Christian unity is about unity of purpose. It means about doing things, not about who we follow or, what kind of doctrine we believe in. It's about working together to further the kingdom of God. Amen.
0: Amen. Endings are a where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If, you, if have you have any questions, questions or would
1: like... like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.